Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, I hope you're having a great week, and we always appreciate you joining us to kind of hang out for a little bit. Hopefully, we can inspire you, encourage you, leave you some, leave you some tidbits of ways to improve your life in whatever context you are listening, if it is personally, professionally, a combination, or both for sure. Today's guest, Chris Widener, a New York Times bestseller, rated one of the top 50 motivational skills speakers in the country, uh, has a dozen books, over 80 CDs that he's produced. Yes, I know people don't have CDs anymore. You're listening to a podcast. You're just doing MP3, downloading it. But thank you again for listening. So one of the things that's talked about in the show is around self-awareness. And CRG is one of the best companies in the world to help you and others establish, create, confirm how you think and feel or become self-aware in many different areas, if it's values, if it's health and wellness, if it's leadership skills, if it's personality, uh, if it's self-worth, whatever the case might be, we have these available. So do reach out to us and we'd love to be able to serve you in that area around self-awareness, which our guest Chris is going to talk about with us today. Well, we have a very, very special guest today, Chris Widener. Now, Chris, I said your name correctly, did I not? You did. You said it perfectly. Well, they're pretty good for a dyslexic guy. Now, here you are, an individual who is ranked one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc. Magazine. That's pretty exclusive territory. Or did the other 99 not show up? Well, I, you know, I got to say it was in alphabetical order. So I was like number 98. So, you know, if they'd have done it in non-alphabetical order, who knows? I might have been top 10, top 20. Well, congratulations on that designation. And it's a pretty exclusive air to be notified by Inc. Magazine. You're one of the top 100 leadership speakers. Yeah, thank you, you also have a, a accolades on LinkedIn that you're a top 50 speaker worldwide. What, what's, where did that come from? Uh, there was a, a site that came out about uh, three, three, four years ago, and they did the top 60 motivational speakers in the world. Uh, of course, Tony Robbins was number one, and you can probably fill out the top 10, Les Brown and, and uh, you know, some of those guys. Um, uh, and then uh, I was number 48. They listed me as number 48, so I felt privileged to be listed amongst a number of other uh, folks. But I think um, it was some sort of a, you know, a mixture of algorithm and social reach and books sold and speaking engagements and those kinds of things. And they figured it out one way or the other. Well, congratulations again. There's two uh, great rewards. So, Chris, we're going to, as part of the SOS, we want to serve the individuals. And, and you, as an expert in leadership and influence and sales and really life principles, will cover a lot of ground. But before we get into that, Chris, what's your story? Where, I mean, where did you grow up and, and just sort of come into this world as far as your progress and your journey? Well, I got here in a very circuitous route. Um, my dad died when I was four, 1970. Wow. Uh, he was 41 years old. He was making $90,000 a year. 
He was the fifth partner at a, uh, an architecture firm called NBB&J. Those of the people in the architecture world will recognize NBB&J as one of the top 10 or 20 architecture firms in the world now. Pick a major city in the world and, and, uh, and they have uh, an architecture firm there. Um, he was their CFO and he had about 150 architects. And one of the things I think that's interesting is uh, in 1970, he had 150 architects. He was doing all the finances for that firm, which is still big with 150 architects. They probably Absolutely. have a thousand now, but even at the time it was pretty big. He did all of their finances on an abacus and a slide rule in uh, 1970. So wow. I always think that's kind of interesting. He passed away at the age of 41, only had $30,000 worth of life insurance, which created sort of a downward spiral for my mom and myself. Um, long story short, ended up living 28 homes, 11 different schools. My mom shipped me off to live with relatives twice because I was so out of control as a kid. Once in the fourth grade, once in the ninth grade. Started drugs in the sixth grade. Uh, alcohol in the sixth grade, uh, spent wow. most, of my, most of my seventh grade stoned, probably had something to do with my 1.4 grade point average that year, made most of my money growing up betting the horses at Long Acres Horse Track and scalping tickets outside the Seattle Mariners and Seattle Seahawks games and Final Four games and, and all those kinds of things. So, and, so how, old, how old were you when you were scalping tickets? Oh, man, I was uh, 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Um, I actually, in 1984, my senior year of high school, Georgetown played Houston in the final four in Seattle at the Kingdom in the final game. I showed up the final game uh, with $20 in my pocket about two hours before the game, and five minutes after the game started, I had $200 in my pocket and a seat in the fifth row. And I put the $200 in my pocket, walked through the gates and the turnstiles, and sat and watched uh, the Georgetown-Houston game uh, from the fifth row in the kingdom. And uh, so that was sort of typical of one of my entrepreneurial pursuits. Where do, where do you think that came from at that time? Was it just survival mode? Yes. I mean, there's many kids your age that would never have the chutzpah to do it, but where did it come for you? Yeah, I was a hustler. Um, in fact, my next book, um, my next book is called It's a Deal, How to Think Big, Grow a Massive Network, and Close More Deals. And I, I, look, back on, uh, I look back on what I was doing from even the time I was a little kid, and I was always hustling. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Your business owners will love this. Uh, I was 14 years old. My mom was working in, uh, at Group Health Hospital. And she worked with a, a guy who was 45 years old or so and had spent most of his career at Group Health Hospital in the filing department. So literally eight hours a day he filed medical records, not the most exciting job. Mm. He had a rich uncle, and his rich uncle loaned him $7,000 so he could go and buy uh, the licensing rights to the Seattle area or Washington, I guess, I guess actually Puget Sound or uh, pardon me, Pacific Northwest area mm -hmm. for a self-watering flower pot. So the self-watering flower pot had two pieces to it. It had the basin, which was the bottom part, looked like a bowl. You put the water in it. And then it had another bowl that sat in on top of it and had like a nipple that went down into the water from the top into the bottom. You put the dirt and the flower in the top part, and then you had a lever along the side that determined how much water the, got sucked up from the bottom into the top. So a cactus, you put it on one side, and an African violet, you put it on another side because they need the exact opposite amounts of water. And uh, so this guy says to me, 14-year-old kid, hey, do you want to sell some flower pots and make some money? And I said, sure. 
And he said, uh, all right, I'll pay you a dollar a pot. And I said, perfect. Now, he thought I was going to go door to door, knocking on doors and selling one or two pots to little old ladies. Mm. I made one sales call. I called Ernst Home Centers, um, which was uh, back before the big box stores. You, you grew up around there and had been around in the Seattle area. And there was a, a thing called Ernst Home Centers. They had hundreds of stores. So I made an appointment with the uh, buyer. My mom bought me a blue blazer and drove me down, dropped me off street side corner on the corner in downtown Seattle. And I went in and this buyer was shocked to see a 14-year-old kid walk in. But I decided, he decided to let me at least show him the, the pot. And I showed him and he said, I love it. He said, I will buy um, four boxes per store for 25 of my stores for a year. So let's do the math on that. Let's call 25 to a box. It was actually 24, but it'll make us do the math easier. 25 right. to a box times four is 100 per store, 25 stores. So 20, he bought 2,500 flower pots a month for a year. So 30,000 flower pots. That was my first and only sales call I made selling flower pots. I went back to the gentleman who had, um, who had put me on this mission and I said, hey, I sold some flower pots. <laughs> he said, how many did you sell? And I said, 30,000. And he said, what? And I told him the story I just told you. And Ken, I kid you not, he got so scared, he called the company back, said, I don't want this business anymore, send me my money back. And they sent him the $7,000 back. So there's two lessons there. Number one, it's just as easy to think big as it is to think small. Wow. Uh, and number two, there's a lot of people that are afraid of success. They're afraid of what it will require from them, what it will mean for them. And uh, I'll never forget that lesson. That guy actually became so afraid. My, my other lesson is, is or, or question is, I, I don't know why my mom didn't borrow the $7,000 from somebody and buy the license. Well, but, absolutely, because um, you would have paid for it straight there. Well, so and it was, you must it was have been awesome. devastated to lose that sale, Chris. Yeah, it would have paid for all my college. It would have paid for everything. But uh, And frankly, they had more than 25 stores. I imagine once they saw how it was selling, uh, if it would have sold well, they could have rolled it out to maybe 100 stores. Wow. Well, now you're talking 300,000 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, just to go aside. What's interesting when you think about success in life, how that person froze when the success was just showing up right in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Wow. Fearful. I don't know what he was afraid of, you know, what it would mean. Because, you know, some people, they have these mindsets. Well, you know, we're blue collar people. We're not wealthy people or rich people step on other people to, to get, you know, to get what uh, they want. And, you know, I don't want to be a person who steps on other people. Deep rooted mental um, uh, bondages that people stay mm -hmm. So here you are. You're 14. You've got this great story. Thank you, Chris, for that. I love that. So what happened then? Now, now you're kind of getting through high school. 1.4, you don't usually pass with 1.4. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my, my seventh grade, I was in a middle school, so seventh and eighth grade, and my vice principal's name was Mr. Fly. And on the last day of school, Mr. Fly called my mother in and said, here's the deal. Uh, Grades-wise, he does not deserve to go into the eighth grade. But we know that Chris is really smart. And, uh, and that he knows the material, and we don't want him around for two more years, so we are putting him into the eighth grade. So they passed me through simply so they didn't have to see me for two more years. They didn't keep me in the seventh grade and make me do it because they just did not want me around for two more years. 
I get it. I get it. So off to high school. Now what? Uh, the last day of my sophomore year of high school, my principal, Mr. Davidson, called me in, and he had a stack of papers on his desk. He said, Chris, you know what these are? I said, no. He said, these are your written referrals to my office this year. Now, these aren't just the times where you ask to go sit out in the hallway because you, you, you talk too much. These are the times that you got written up in triplicate. One to the teacher, one to your mom, and one to the principal. And you got to go down to the principal's office and usually ended up with in-school suspension. He said, do you know how many I have here? I said, no. And uh, he said, I have 47 written referrals here. I told my, told my son that once. He said, Dad, that's like once every four days. And that was about that was about it. I was I was angry and bitter and lost and probably lost is probably the best way to put it. I had no idea. I'd gotten sidetracked. I had no male role models growing up. My my dad died when I was four. My older brother was 13 years older than me, so he moved and went to college as soon as my dad died. And then he married a woman who hated my mother, so they never came around much. Um, my one grandpa left, and I met him once in my entire life, and then my other grandpa died when I was a young kid. All I really remember is him is laying on the couch with a, a, an oxygen mask in his nose because he had emphysema. He had oxygen mask in his nose and, and a uh, Paul Mall in his right hand smoking it. So I didn't have a whole lot of male role models growing up, so I think I was probably, if you had to describe it, probably lost was the, the best definition, which... In, which played itself out in misbehavior and, and acting out and those kinds of things. I suspect, Chris, this has played into your empathy towards others to help them to get on track in life as well. Yeah, you know, um, people who know me well, they're, they're like, you know, why do you put up with this from people? And I'm like, I don't know. I want to be, I want to believe the best in people. And they're just like, I don't know why you put up with this. You know, people will rail you online and I try and reach out to them or whatever. And so there is a little bit of sympathy there, I think, that comes from knowing that, um, you know, people get dealt bad hands and people don't always deal and deal with them in the best ways. Mm. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So here you are in high school. Did you get out? Obviously, they let you out. I did. I, I ended up with a 2.2 grade point average, but uh, I always tell people like Zig used to say, I was in the half of the class that made the top half possible. So um, I think I had 172 people in my class, and I think I was like 149th or something like that. Uh, eked my way out, but at this point, I decided I wanted to do something with my life. So I went to college, and I got a degree in youth and family work because I was going to help, um, help at-risk teens. I spent three years working with teenagers, realized I didn't like teenagers. Now, hey, well, 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 hang on, Chris. How does a person with 2.2 get into college? Oh, it was not a very good college. It was uh, the qualifications for getting into this college was that the check cleared. And obviously, a check did clear, so you were doing some kind of work at that time. Yeah, I mean, and my mom helped me out a little. It wasn't it wasn't terribly expensive. I think it was back in 84 to 88 when I went to college it was like $7500 a year. Mm, well, there you go. So yeah. you're taking um, you know, youth and social work what happened then? I got out. I went uh, back to northern New Jersey and I got a job at a church as a youth minister. I also coached uh high school basketball in this little town. Um, it ended up, I wasn't really working with at-risk teens. I was in one of the wealthiest zip codes in America. And on the board of this church that I worked at as a youth director um, were some of the most successful businessmen in America. And it ends up that my first business mentor was a guy whose son was in my youth group, and he was the CEO of Mars Candies. 
No um, okay. Yeah. Little $25 billion a year company. At the time, he was senior vice president of marketing for Mars. Uh, he jumped from there and became president of Calcan, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of, uh, of Mars. And then from there, he became president of Mars Candies, or as he called it, the highest position you can get without being a member of the Mars family. Um, but I had a guy that played NFL football, quarterback in NFL football. He, he became a mentor, the number two guy at Prudential Worldwide, became a mentor, still in touch with him and his wife and 30-something um, years later. And, and so here were some guys that were successful men that, that, you know, remember, I had no male role models and really had no success role models. And so I got dumped into this little town. And you look back, you look back and you go, okay, maybe this was more about you know, sort of God's plan for my life than it was mm -hmm. for, for anything else because it was transformational. The three years I spent in that, that little town in northern New Jersey, um, a little town called Mendham, New Jersey, um, really became the platform for um, the rest of my life and uh, was really truly transformational for me on a personal level as well as a, a business level. I think, Chris, for the listeners, for the SOS listeners, one of the things you're stating, and you know, this has happened with different guests too, is just never underestimate the impact that one might be having when you're mentoring somebody. It just could be a moment, could be a few minutes, could be a few days, where for you, that really is a, a turning point. Now, not to belabor this, because you have lots of extra expertise we want to have shared on the show yet but where what was the motivation to go to new jersey like how, how did that how, i mean that's the other side of the country how did you even oh. find out about it this is before the internet as most people don't know very funny um it was sort of you know if you want if you're if you're non-religious you call it serendipitous if you're religious you might call it sovereignty or something like that but um i went to a i took a year off my junior year and went to a college in minnesota I had some friends that had gone there, so I went there, spent a year there, and I met a girl out there, um, became a friend, no, not anything, you know, mm -hmm. um, romantic or anything, but met a girl out there who was from this little town in New Jersey. So I leave, and I go back to my, my senior year at this other college, and I didn't have, I mean, I literally hadn't put my name out. I wasn't really knowing where I was going to get a job. I hadn't interviewed for anything. And I got a phone call one day from the pastor of this church. And it was spring. It was like six weeks before graduation. And he said, you know, this girl came back and, and uh, was, you know, we mentioned that we might be looking for a youth minister, youth director. And um, she said, you've got to call my friend who lives in Seattle. And so we talked on the phone and they flew me out there and I met with their youth group and their parents and their leaders. And they said, we love you. You're great. You're hired. So um, I got hired and it was literally the only job I've ever applied for, I think, in my entire career. I, I, I got to love that, Chris. That's a great story. That's a great story. So here we are in New Jersey. You are being mentored. Now, where's the tipping point of getting into your own businesses? Well, I uh, decided that I was going to start a little publishing company. It was called the American Community Business Network, and it was a faxed journal. So we faxed this out to tens of thousands of business owners. Every weekend, we used an old computer program called WinFax Pro. Oh, I remember was, that. Yeah, uh, man, Pro. I'm dating myself. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and some of your younger listeners are going, what the heck is a fax? And, and they don't even know how to spell it. It's F-A-X. It was... 
it was short for facsimile. Um, but we would send that out and we charged advertising locally. And then we started licensing it to people in certain uh, towns and they would pay us the fee and then they would sell their advertising locally. And so every Monday morning, business owners would come in and there would be the uh, community business network, um, American Community Business Network journal, business journal. And I started writing business tips and computer tips and motivational tips. And I wrote all the content for it. It was a four-page journal that went out every week. And um, it was based off of, I got the idea from a local radio station in Seattle called Cairo, K-I-R-O. And they did a thing called the Cairo News Facts. And it was one page every single day with the top news points and it got faxed out to people. So I, I created a business fax journal and then uh, late 90s I, I, you know, I learned a good lesson. I was living in Seattle and everybody in Seattle was technological and they all had email addresses and the whole shebang and I said, you know what, email's it, I'm dumping the fax thing and I sent out one last fax that said, um, you know, we're dumping the facts, we're going to email, sign up, you know, if you want to keep getting this, sign up on email. Well, what I didn't realize was how far ahead of the curve Seattle was um, because of Microsoft and, and some of those tech companies. And everybody in Seattle had an email, but nobody in Omaha had an email. And so we went from tens and tens of thousands of subscribers to about 800 email subscribers overnight. Uh, almost killed the business, but we kept it going, built it up. Within a few years, by 98, 99, I had 100,000 people on my email list, uh, started writing books, um, eventually created a business licensing audio programs from professional speakers. Uh, we licensed hundreds and hundreds of audio programs, and then we put them into boxed sets around themes. So our three biggest sellers were leadership, sales success, and verbal power, and we put them into 14 uh, 14 CDs and one DVD into every box, and uh, and we were selling 50 to 75,000 units a month through Costco and Sam's Club, Borders, Barnes and Noble, and the like. Wow! Um, and then people stopped buying CDs. And fortunately, I sold that business before people stopped buying CDs. But um, that was a, a little bit of a ride. I sold that company in 2009 uh, to a business partner of mine. Wow. So I was ghostwriting for John Maxwell, who's a, a well-known leadership guru, and I, I wrote his syndicated column that went out to the business journals across the country. And I got a phone call. They wanted me to ghostwrite for Jim Rohn. And I said, eh, I'm not ghostwriting anymore, but I'll co-write. So, you know, um, I ended up writing the Jim Rohn one-year program from 2002 to 2003. Um, and that thing sells so well, I still get royalty checks every month from it uh, 15 years later. And, um, and so that was um, uh, my first meeting with Jim. Uh, ended up writing his last book with him called The Twelve Pillars and uh, did a number of speaking engagements with him. We, we did the Jim Rohn 2004 Weekend Leadership event, and that ended up, I spent so much time in Dallas, ended up with my own television show in Dallas, and then was asked by uh, Zig Ziglar to co-host his television show with him at the same uh, television network down there in Dallas. People sometimes say, Chris, tell me, tell me how to build a speaking career. And I said, well, first have John Maxwell call you. Second, have Jim Rohn call you. Third, have Zig Ziglar call you. And when that happens, you're, you're in business. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> what are you seeing out there now when we think about, and I'll come to leadership and sales and influence sort of at the end of the show, but 
What are you seeing now? You know, why are people not being successful? Why are they being successful? What are you really sort of finding in the marketplace as a speaker and a person connected out there? I've come to the conclusion that all success and failure is rooted in one simple um, beginning point, and that is self-awareness. Um, people who allow themselves to become self-aware allow themselves to change and grow. People who won't allow themselves to become self-aware because they're afraid of what they might see um, can never make the changes needed to be able to grow. And so, you know, I, I believe that it's, it's rooted in self-awareness. And self-awareness is just one of those things that people will talk about and they'll, um, they'll say great things about it. And they'll, oh, yes, uh-huh, self-awareness is so important. But in order to become self-aware, you really have to look in the mirror and you have to be willing to see what's ugly about you or what's weak about you and then deal with it. Because most people uh, are held back by character flaws, uh, lack of skills, um, a lack of strengths, those kinds of things, and, and they're undone by those things that constantly it's like a, you know, it's kind of like a, um, uh, a rope around an elephant's foot, right? You know, all you have to do is drive the stake into it and the elephant won't move uh, because it thinks that it can't move. And, and so, you know, we get held back by these things and, and all you have to do is come to some self-awareness that, hey, I can pull this stake up and start walking away. But most people don't because they're afraid because if they see some weakness or they see some flaw, most people will, will say, oh, here's a flaw, here's a weakness, therefore I'm not a good person. And what they need to say is, here's a flaw, here's a weakness, everybody has them, but I'm going to beat mine. And it's just a simple, uh, you know, the realist says everybody has flaws. The pessimist says my flaws make me a bad person, I suck, I'm not going to do very well. And the optimist says I've got flaws and weaknesses like everybody else, but I'm going to overcome mine and go do something with my life. Mm. Well, you're speaking to the choir, creating self-awareness is one of the gifts or our space and CRG with all our assessments and tools mm. and help people to be conscious in that. Yeah, I always talk about integrity. Um, and I always tell people integrity is number one. You can put all the rest of them in whatever order you want to. Um, and the funny thing is, is that everybody thinks they have integrity, um, but they think everybody around them doesn't. So I do this thing in my seminars where I'll say, you know, based on your reading of the, the news the last, you know, few years, would you say that America has a problem with integrity? You know, you read about businessmen failures and religious leaders and politicians. And how many of you would say by a show of hands that we have a problem with integrity in the world today? Everybody's hand goes up. Then I say, okay, here's a follow-up question. How many of you would describe yourself speaking only of yourself, that you have little or no integrity? And I've asked that question of a million people all around the world in my seminars, and not a single person has ever raised their hand. Hmm. So I say, here's what's fascinating. Everybody says, yes, we have a problem, and no, I'm not part of it. So I started asking myself, why is that? What's the, what's the, what's the deal there? What's the discrepancy? And what I realized was is that when someone else does something wrong, we judge their actions. They tell a lie or they do this or they do that, and we judge their actions. We say that person has no integrity because they did this. Mm -hmm. But when we do something wrong, we don't judge our actions. We judge our intentions. 
And this is why we can say there's an integrity problem and I'm not part of it. Because we're judging other people with a very different standard than we judge ourselves. And so we just, we don't have any self-awareness of it. The problem is, is that other people are looking at our actions and they're not judging our, our intentions. They're judging our actions just like we do to them. And so they're looking at us and saying that person or that company lacks integrity. I'm not going to do business with them anymore. And if we would just have a little self-awareness and see ourselves the way the world around us sees us, then we, we, we could get uh, down to some nitty-gritty that would help us actually change and grow our lives and grow our businesses. You know, I've done some work with Marshall Goldsmith, and that's the number one criteria to work with a client. If they don't have integrity, he will quit working with them. What yep. are you teaching leaders out there? Because in our experience working with clients, there's employees that will steal from you. They'll steal by coming late. They'll not work hard. You know, all these things are lack of integrity. How are you teaching individuals and organizations to embrace this concept of integrity and, and to actually go forward with it successfully? You know, if you were to ask the average person about institutions that are well-respected, um, West Point is, you know, always near the top. People look at West Point and the Naval Academy and places like that, and they say, wow, those institutions, you know, they're epitome. They're our best, young, best and brightest young people, you know, et cetera. One of my favorite books of all time is The West Point Way of Leadership. West Point Way of Leadership, I, I don't even know if it's still in print, but I just took a men's mastermind through it. And it is written by a guy named uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Larry Donathorne. And he, at the very beginning, talks about the honor code that many of these places have. You know, basically don't lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate anyone who does. And, you know, this is the, this is the premise uh, of the military academies. And for, for thousands of years, millennia, um, most institutions, uh, we've gotten away from that. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the term, oh, we drummed him out of here. This term drumming, drumming somebody out of the business or drumming them out of the organization it actually comes from the military academies. Mm. If someone was caught to, thought to have and proven to have broken the, the honor code, uh, all of the people would gather around in their full dress gear and the drum would start to play and the charges would be read and the kid would be walked out of the, uh, would be walked out of the program shut the gates behind him and never to be mentioned again. Now, some people listening are going, oh, my gosh, you know, come on. That's a little overkill. But you know what? You know what doesn't happen at the military academies? Lying, cheating, and stealing <laughs> doesn't happen at the military academies. Because if it does, they get drummed out. They get walked out, and they get sent on their way because those aren't the types of people that we want leading our organizations, whether military or as, as so happens, most of those men and women who graduate from those military academies, they end up, you know, eventually leaving the military and uh, becoming great business leaders. So um, I think the thing that I, first of all, don't lie, cheat, or steal. That's a big one for a lot of people. Don't lie. Well, it's just a little white lie. Well, you know... It's not, you know, it doesn't really matter. No, tell the truth. No matter what the, no matter what the pain that may come from it, you have to tell the truth. But the second is just like it. Don't tolerate those who do. Because if you tolerate them amongst your, your midst, if, if you're the one guy out of 10 in your office and, and you adhere to this code, 
or there's, you know, let's say six of you adhere to this code, but you tolerate the four who won't, you still don't know who's telling the truth and whether they can believe, be believed. You don't know if projects are going out on time or going to be finished on time. You don't know if the numbers are really truly projected or actually came in. You know, you just create so much confusion. And, uh, and so I think that's one of the things that I constantly harp on and talk about is this, this need, and not because of some sort of self-righteous you know, thing, but it works better practically when people don't lie, cheat, and steal. Oh, absolutely, because otherwise, what do you believe and what do you not believe? For sure. Now, you, that, this is this whole thing of fake news, right, where nobody really, really knows how you vet through all of that to figure out what is really, really, really true. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's difficult, and, and then people wonder when they get caught uh, saying one thing. Uh, I have a friend who was a Secret Service agent for 17 years. And he said, you know, we would get off at night after have, being in a rally and we'd go back to our hotel room and we'd turn on the TV and we would look at the, the news and what we saw in the news was nothing we saw in reality because of camera angles and if they wanted to downplay one politician, they'd show the, the, the seven empty seats and not the 10,000, you know, the 9,993 full ones. Or if it was somebody that they wanted to promote, they'd show the, the 100 filled seats and not the 9,900 that weren't filled. And so, you know, it's just, uh, it's, whether it's in newspapers or, or it's in the religious world or the business world or whatever, um, you've got to tell the truth. Mm. Well, we saw what happened in 2008 when they didn't. Yeah. The Wall Street perspective. Yeah. You know, when a person can't afford payments, then that's what you have, right? Yeah. So now when you're going out and teaching leadership, and I've done sales training for 25 years as well, Chris, what are you teaching sales professionals where you say, well, everybody else is, is stealing or, or lying to get the business? How do you respond to your clients when they say that? Well, I tell them that, you know, if you want to build, if you want to be successful short term, go ahead and lie because you can be successful short term. Um, if you're a car salesman and you only plan on being in the business for two years, then tell them it's going to get 100 miles to the gallon and, and you know, tell them it's got all this horseback. Do all you want because you'll be long gone before they return the car or before they come back to buy their next car or before they come back to buy their wife's car or their child's car or they refer you to their next door neighbor or their dad comes in to buy a car. But if you want to be successful long term, um, you've got to tell the truth. Because you can lie to somebody and be successful once, but you can't lie to somebody and be successful twice. Because eventually they realize they got lied to and they, they tell everybody what a bad guy you are. But if you tell them the truth and it, and it plays out the way that, that you told them that it would play out, then they tell everybody about you. So it might take a while for the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth person to come in and buy the car, but eventually they will if you're honest. I, I had an interaction with a, I was buying a car and ended up, long story short, chose one uh, car over the other car, different, different um, brands. And mainly because when I narrowed it down to the two, the guy started lying to me. And I ended up talking to the general manager of the company that was lying to me because they called and they, they wanted to see how they could get my business. I said, I already bought the other car. And so it ended up, they said, why? I told him, ended up being called by the general manager. And he said, you know, Chris, it's my biggest problem right now 
Nobody stays in the car business long enough to ever have to deal with the, the punishment for lying. And he said it used to be 70 years, you know, 50 years ago that car dealers were local and people bought from the car dealer in their town. And the salesperson who sold them their car sat in the pew in front of them in church and their kids went to school together and they saw each other at the PTA meetings and you would never lie about it because then you knew that you had to see them at church and, and at the PTA mm -hmm. meetings. He said, but now my salespeople all live 45 minutes, hour away, you know, six cities away, and they're only going to work for me for 18 months. So they think that they can pull all these stunts. And the problem is, is that I'm the one who's left holding the bag because I've been here for 20 years and I'm going to be here for 20 more until I retire. And so, um, and so, you know, he was mm -hmm. describing a problem that I think is probably more true for, for people than we, would, than we would like to believe. So, Chris, when we, we have about eight minutes, uh, ten minutes left. When you're thinking about your, you really have a lot of work around this area on influencing others. Now, it applies to sales, it applies to leadership, it applies to family. What are you teaching now around me to have my own power, my own influence or positive influence of the people around me? And then also, why is it important? So what I'm teaching people is character-based influence. I'm not teaching tactical persuasion techniques. I'm teaching personal transformation as it relates to influencing. There's all sorts of tactical persuasion techniques, and they're great, and they're fine, and they're good. But ultimately, people buy from people they trust. So what I'm teaching people is, is to look in the mirror and ask yourself what kind of person you are. And ask yourself whether or not other people like you or not. Now, I know there's some people that say, hey, I don't care if other people like me. I'm going to do my own thing and be my own person. Okay, that's great. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether you're a jerk or not. And, and whether or not, you know, you make people feel better about themselves or you tear people down. And so um, I'm teaching a lot about how to be positive. Uh, one of the chapters in my new book is called Mr. Sunshine, How to Brighten a Room When You Walk In. You know, Zig Ziglar used to say there's two kinds of people in this world. There's people that brighten a room when they walk in and there's people that brighten a room when they walk out. And the fact is, is that people who brighten a room and they walk out don't usually become very successful because nobody wants to do business with them. Nobody wants to hang around them. Nobody wants to do business with them. Nobody wants to buy from them. Um, you know, people buy from people they like. So to me, this is less about learning what to do to other people. Mm -hmm. but it's more about what you need to do to yourself. And, uh, and so that's what I teach people is growing yourself, things like integrity, things like being a positive, optimistic person. People are, admire optimists. Uh, you know, they did, a, um, they did a study, some linguistics professors, I think from Illinois State, and uh, they researched, they, they took presidential candidates' stump speeches, they put them into computers, they coded certain words as positive, certain words as negative, and they ran an analysis on it. This was three or four prior, I think even prior to Obama. But they did like 18 elections, and that um, they found that every single election except one, the most positive person won the election. And, and so what they found out was people vote for people who are positive. Now, I'll give you an example, and I'm, I'm not saying this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be nonpartisan here, but I want to look at it analytically. When you look at the last presidential election, 
and you look at simply the slogan of each candidate. Do you remember what the slogan, uh, the presidential uh, slogan was for Hillary Clinton? Do you know what her campaign slogan was? I actually don't remember what it was. It was, I'm with her. That was literally her campaign slogan. I'm with her. Not very inspiring. I'm, you know, where, you know, who are you? Yeah, I'm just with her. You know, it, it not inspiring. Now, of course, everybody knows what Donald Trump's was because it came on that red hat that half the population was wearing, and it was Make America Great Again. Now, the funny thing is, is, you know, there was lots of fighting and infighting about that slogan, but he was not the first person to, to use that slogan. Um, Ronald Reagan used that slogan. Bill Clinton used that slogan. I find it ironic that Donald Trump used it against Bill Clinton's wife when they both ended up running for president. But doesn't that kind of, isn't that inspirational? Yeah, let's make it great again. You know, let's not make it bad. Let's not continue to be bad. Let's, let's make it great again. That would be a good thing. And you could do that with Canada or Mexico or Argentina. You could take, take the same message and say, we're going to make ourselves great again. We're going to get back on the great track, right? Mm -hmm. And frankly, people respond to that kind of thing. So it's, it's been borne out by statistics and, and science uh, and scientific research that people buy from people they like and who are positive. If a presidential candidate or a governor or something got up and said, you know, vote for me and I'm going to raise your taxes and, and the roads are going to be worse and, and you're probably going to lose your job and your kids will get sick and no health care, nobody would vote for you. Even if it were true, nobody would vote for you because mm -hmm. people are attracted to other people who will paint the picture of a positive preferred future. So I teach people how to be positive and optimistic while still being realistic. Um, uh, I teach people how to uh, take a look at their life and uh, look at ways that they can increase their levels and standards of excellence so they can improve their lives and, and people are attracted to people who excel. When we, when we want somebody to influence us, we look for people who are excelling. For example, if I had financial, if I wanted financial advice, if I said I need somebody to influence me financially, I wouldn't go to the guy standing on the side of the road with a cardboard box that says we'll work for food. Uh, I would go to a rich uncle or somebody who I knew who owned a bunch of apartment buildings or was great in the stock market. I'd look for somebody who excelled with mm -hmm. finance. You know, if a couple's having marriage problems, they don't go to the couple that bickers all the time. They go to the couple that's been married for 45 years. If somebody wants to lose weight, they don't go to the big fat guy and say, hey, tell me how to eat. They go to somebody who's physically fit and say, teach me about how you eat and what your exercise routine is. You know, teach me about these things. So we, by nature, seek out people who are excelling in an area that we want to grow in. So the reverse is true. If we excel at something, other people will be attracted to us and will seek out our influence. So it's more about what you do to yourself than what you do to other people. And holding your ground, not compromising. It's one of the words that I use, you know, not compromising for a situation. I'll give you an example, Chris. Many, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I was feeling insecure and I misrepresented my degrees at that time. I had a diploma, but I said I had a degree, but I didn't. And so I actually felt ill about it because I was feeling insecure that they wouldn't like me because. But in the end, I had to come clean and say, listen, I don't have a decree, degree. I have a diploma. <clears throat> and, and, but I felt badly about that. And I learned the lesson that really compromising 
to try to win approval never really wins in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said, you can you can pull something over for a while, but never for long term. Mm. So, Chris, you know, we've had a great conversation. You've got a lot of content you've covered. How can people find out about your work? Um, they can go to chriswidener.com, chriswidener.com, uh, that's W-I-D-E-N-E-R. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, at Chris Widener Speaker. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, at Chris Widener. Um, LinkedIn, Chris Widener. So pretty, pretty simple. Pretty simple. Uh, it's funny you're actually using your name. How about, yeah. that? <laughs> How about that, Chris? Well, I sure appreciate you being with us, Chris. Now, Chris, if you were to leave a nugget beyond what you've shared with us already as a strategy to be a successful individual in life, you know, to live my dreams, whatever, I know we could go on for a couple more hours, but what would be sort of a nugget or one more piece of wisdom that you can leave as we depart today? Well, I already said, I already talked about it's just as easy to think big as it is to think small. So I'm going to skip that one and go to another one that I say pretty regularly, and that is be a voice, not an echo. Be a voice, not an echo. Don't just copy what somebody else is doing. Don't just say what somebody else is saying, but create a, a, a different, better product, service, um, create better and different ideas. Uh, and be known for your creation rather than your copying. Mm. Well, thank you, Chris, for spending the time with us today. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Ken. Well, everybody, go to Chris's website. Make sure we'll put it in the link in all the podcast shows so that you can go there, learn more about him. If you are a business that's looking for a great speaker, hey, one of the top 50 in the world, that's pretty good. Well, that's awesome, actually. And you know what? Act with integrity. You will never regret that side of things. We thank you as always for giving us the most important commodity you have and that is your time. If you like what we're doing, share, pass it on, leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're listening. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.